All right. Well, it's good to have you back for week number three in our study of anthropology. We've had a lot of anthropology and more anthropology tonight. We'll get into the fallen part of humanity uh, in two weeks. Next week, I have a very special surprise for you. Do not miss next week. I don't know what your you know, temptation is to skip, but don't skip next week. You will want to be here next week, and that's all I'm going to say about it. It will be special, okay? I promise that. And the week after that, we'll start dealing with some other issues in our second topic, and they'll all be conflated from that point on. But it's good for you to be here, and before we start, we always want to ask for God's help and his empowerment for us to to learn, to think, for me to be able to speak clearly. So let's ask him for that right now. God, thank you for being for us everything that we need. Uh, Certainly not all things our flesh wants in this life, but we're grateful, God, that we know that what we have in you as our Father is a provider for all necessary things, and most importantly, the forgiveness of our sins, which most people don't sense or feel now, but one day when we pass from this life to the next, it will become uh, painfully evident how desperately we need our sins to be atoned for, to be covered, to be redeemed, to have that uh, debt removed. So God, for those of us that trust completely in your Son and not in our own works, those of us that have turned from our sin because of your gracious endowment of enabling us to turn from sin to you, God, we want to thank you for that most profound provision. And then as we think about things like this, looking to your word and the truth of your word to understand humanity, as we mentioned last week, we know this is something every person, every broadcaster, every pundit, every writer, every columnist, everybody who writes a book, every author, everyone has an opinion on mankind and who we are. And so, God, we want to make sure that we are not influenced more by our culture and the world than we are by learning from your word exactly what it is that you say that we are, who we are, and all the implications of that. As we deal with these very important and crucial issues here tonight, I pray you'd give me uh, the endowment and ability to speak clearly, to be cogent and lucid and logical, that I would be biblical and accurate, and I pray for those listening that they would be receptive, their hearts would be open to hear from your word, that we might be able to examine issues perhaps in ways that have not been considered before in the lives of many people here and the minds of people seeing passages correlated together in a way that would help us to build a foundation for our thinking, that we can think biblically in this world. So God, guide our time now, we pray. Guide us through it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as you can see from the worksheets, we've got some heavy topics tonight. If you've read ahead, which I'm sure you have, um, and I just want to start right out of the gate here, dealing with some Fundamental statements, much of the very first impression will seem like review, but let's say it this way. Human life, as we looked at it last week, is uniquely sacred. You can say a lot of things are sacred. That, by the way, is the Latin root. We get the word uh, sacred or sanctos, and it comes into Spanish, san and santa. That's from the word uh, in New Testament Greek, hagios, which is the word set apart or holy. So when we say so that, that human life is uniquely sacred, what we're saying it is it is holy. 
doesn't mean that it's perfectly righteous, because of course it's not. And so much of what we're going to study is about the fall of mankind and the sin of mankind and the depth of our problem and the depravity of man. But what we're dealing with now is that it is uniquely set apart from all other things that God made. It is, and this will take no time really to deal with this other than to review the, the words, it is unique and special and holy because... Unlike any other thing God created here on earth, at least as described in Genesis 1 and 2, human beings are in his image. We are uniquely like God. There's nothing else on this planet that you interact with that is more like God than the people that you interact with, as unholy and unrighteous as we are in varying degrees. We are more like God than anything else on the planet. So we're uniquely sacred, special, Set apart, unique, unmatched in creation because we are made in his image. Letter B. Human life, when we think this through, these are just foundational principles that will guide these very important topics, three of them that we'll deal with tonight. Human life is, is given directly by God. And I wanted to deal with the origin of the soul and all that, but we may have to deal with that later, or maybe I'll just give you a supplement sheet, that, a paper that I can write on that. But when we deal with the sanctity of life, the sacredness of life, sanctity, sacredness, the set apart, the holiness, uniqueness of life. We go to passages like Acts chapter 17 just by way of summary and say, okay, when we look at mankind, he is who he is because God is directly giving him life, right? God himself, this is to the professors at Athens and the Areopagus, uh, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man and every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. He is sovereign over it. He administrates it all. He is the God who gives us life. So he is directly involved in giving us life. So if anybody is alive on the planet, they are being sustained by God because God made them to be born from the initial parents that he created. He made from one man every nation of mankind. They live all over the planet, all through time, the places and the times that we live. So God is giving life to those people and sustaining their life. So every human life is special, unique, set apart. And one of the reasons is not only because it's made in God's image, but because God is giving that person life. The very breath that they breathe, breathe is a direct gift of God. Okay? Simple enough. Letter C. Sanctity is not measured by performance. And by performance, I mean someone who is able to do something right, better than the next person. Someone is able to think better, to create better, to manage better, to function better, to run faster, jump higher. Anything that you would look at that would compare human beings in terms of their behavior, their actions, their intellectual capacities... None of that sanctity is measured on that grid. That has nothing to do with their sanctity at all. We can speak of some basic things like disabilities. Exodus chapter 4 verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, that's Moses, when he was arguing about going to Pharaoh and being the spokesperson. And he said, who has made man's mouth? Okay, now that's pretty easy, but this is the part we often don't give much thought to. And who makes him mute? Right? Or deaf or seeing. Now, who makes who mute, deaf or seeing or blind? Right? Man. Who makes man that? So man is man, whether he can speak, speak well, whether he's mute, deaf, seeing, or blind. 
It is, not, is it not I, the Lord? I make people and I make them in all different shapes and sizes and in all different levels of performance. Some people can do amazingly you know, complex uh, intellectual things and, and some people can't. Some people are disabled when it comes to their minds. Some people can do incredible things with their body or their strength and some people cannot. Some people are disabled. Now, this has to be, I think, clearly understood as the foundational principle of the sanctity of life. Because when you look at some passages, particularly as they deal with the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, you start to see distinctions that give you pause when you read through the Old Testament. For instance, Leviticus chapter 21, I don't have it up on the screen, but you might read through a text that says, listen, you cannot serve in the temple courts. Here's some of the things that it says. If you are blind, lame, even if you have some kind of serious blemish, if you have some kind of limb that's too long, injured foot, injured hand, if you're hunchback or a dwarf or you have some defect in your sight, some kind of disease that causes an itch on your skin, if you have scabs and on it goes. Kind of gross, but if you have any one of those, which would probably split this group in half tonight, right? Wouldn't it? Think about it. If you really want to, I mean, do you have any eczema? Do you have psoriasis? Do you have any kind of, 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 of you know, uh, orthopedic problems? Uh, any of that excluded you from serving in the temple courts. And you read that and you can think for a second, well, wait a minute. God is, is kind of uh, gradiating the importance of humanity. See, but that's not the case at all. When it comes to the ceremonial laws, these are issues of role, never of worth. These are issue of function when it comes to God's ceremonies in the temple and never an issue of the sanctity of their humanity. And that is made clear all around those texts. But in those texts, there were certain things that you could and couldn't do. If you were a Gentile, which was no fault of your own, you couldn't go into certain parts of the temple mount. Right? If you were a Jewish man and you had perfect skin and no orthopedic problems and no issues that were listed there, your joints are fine, your body's fine, everything's in shape, but you were from the wrong tribe. You weren't a Levite. Sorry, couldn't serve in the temple. You see what I'm saying? This had nothing to do with the worth of people. It didn't even have anything to do really when it comes to grading one person as more efficient or functional than the next. Although, if you are going to serve, Part of the ceremony was not only you have to dress in a certain way, but you can't have these physical problems. But that stands independent to the statement I've just made. Sanctity, the importance of what is, is honored as made in God's image, has nothing to do with IQ. It has nothing to do with strength. It has nothing to do with agility or performance. God is a God that calls people people, whether they can talk or can't talk, whether they can hear or can't hear, whether they can think straight or whether they're blind or whatever the issues are. As a matter of fact, he gives special attention even in the laws that deal with the distinctions of who can serve in the temple of making sure that you are, are, are not in any way taking advantage of someone who has some obvious disability. You shall not curse the deaf. You shall not put a stumbling block before the blind. Why? Because you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Well, that's a threat, is it not? If you start picking on people because they're less than you, and you start doing those kinds of things, either to jeer them or make fun of them or, or take advantage of them, God says, I will take that personally. That has nothing to do, see, when it comes to the issues of ceremony on the temple. It has everything to do with, do you see that all life is, in God's mind, sacred? It has nothing to do with performance. Sanctity, holiness, uniqueness, 
when it, and I say holiness not in a moral sense, but holiness in an ontological sense. Being set apart as something so important to God that he says, you better watch out or I'll punish you if you mess with it, has only to do with whether you qualify as a human being. Not whether or not you can perform better than the next person or better health or better ability or better intellect or whatever it might be. Sanctity is never measured by performance when it comes to humanity in the Bible. Fourthly, letter D, people are stewards of life and not owners. People are stewards of life. Now, that's a Bible word. If you're brand new to the church, it may be a word you've got to get into your vocabulary. There's no better word for us to think through so many aspects of the Christian life and even life in and out of the Old Testament. The idea of not being an owner, but an administrator, a manager. You don't own it. You're just someone who happens to have a responsibility to affect how it happens, whatever it is, whether it's your responsibility in the church, whether it's the gifts that God endows you with, or in this case, whether or not you're a human being or not. I have life within me. I'm created in the image of God. There are people better than me, smarter than me, stronger than me, but I am a a recipient of the life that God gives. God has given me the grace of life. And as someone who possesses that life, I can steer it, I can direct it, I can do things with my life, and I need to always remember I am not my own. And that has nothing to do with the New Testament verses in 1 Corinthians that talk about my redemption because I've been bought with a price. I'm not talking about that. In in New Testament terms, as regenerate people, we're doubly his, see? But as just being a person on the planet, made in the image of God, The Bible would be very clear. You're a steward of life. Passages like this would be very pertinent to that statement and that assertion. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's. Right? Okay, that makes sense. He made it. And the fullness thereof, the world, and now this is a personal pronoun, those who dwell therein. Everyone on the planet belongs to God. Now, you can make this statement that sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians, and you are not your own. It's making that statement. But let's just draw it to the conclusion to make sure that everyone realizes that if you are a recipient of the life that God gives, you can steer it, you can direct it, you can choose to think because you have that ability that's in the image of God about whatever you want. You're directing that. You're able to make decisions because God is volitional. You reflect his volition in that regard. You have will and you can choose to do things, but you don't, that is not your ability and that is not your possession. It is your stewardship. You get to, because God grants you a stewardship, to think, to create, to manage, to do whatever it is that you do. But you are not your own. See, even that one statement, I guess there's so many implications of that. We're going to look at three topics tonight. But when it comes to that, think of how different that is than secular anthropology. Right? You are your own. Right? This is your life. You spend it your way. That has nothing, there's, there's no equivalent to that thought. In the Bible at all. The Bible is very clear. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those uh, who dwell therein. So you belong to God. Psalm 103, that is by virtue, not of redemption, but just by virtue of him being creator. You are his, not just because he redeemed you. That makes you doubly his. You are his by virtue of him being creator. Know that Yahweh, the Lord, is God. He's in charge. It is he who made us. We are his. See, we're his because he made us. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The sheep 
don't, that's not their land. They just eat from that land. They're not even in charge of deciding where they go ultimately. They're led by a shepherd. All of the picture of being a sheep, that's the most dependent animal in their you know, society, their economy, their agrarian economy. And that's how he equates us as people that are complete stewards of our own lives. We're not possessors of it. We're not owners of it. We only possess it as a stewardship. E, therefore, these are what our three topics are going to touch on. Destroying innocent life is prohibited. Destroying innocent life. You see innocent in quotation marks. Because there are two ways to think of innocence. In an absolute sense and in a relative sense. You understand that no one in here, according to Romans chapter 1 through 3, is innocent. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. In that sense, we are guilty. And yet the Bible uses the word innocent... Right? In a relative sense, particularly in the law code of Moses, about people that are innocent and people that are guilty. And so we need to know that when we talk about destroying life, we're talking here in, in our discussion tonight about innocent life. Okay? Let me just give you the foundational verse for this. It's in the Ten Commandments as we call it, call it Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Ratzok, Ratzok. Ratzok. Now, there's so many Hebrew words for kill. Okay, but this is Ratzok. And Ratzok, we're going to make some comparisons by turning in our Bibles right now to um, uh, Numbers 35. Numbers chapter 35. Ratzok. It's translated here murder. If you have grown up, as I did, on the King James Bible, you know this verse reads, Thou shalt not what? Kill. Murder and kill can be distinguished very easily in our thinking. Okay? In Hebrew, ratzak, we're going to see, is clearly a distinctive term. And so a better translation than what Tyndale came up with and the translators there in the Hampton Court in the 17th century, into the 16th century, beginning of the 17th century, they translate this, kill. Uh, that's not as precise as we need it to be. Okay? Numbers chapter 35, you found that, did you not? Let's look at verse 19. By the way, the context here is the cities of refuge. We got the cities of refuge, some on the west side of the Jordan River, some on the east side of the Jordan River. And this is basically the penitentiary, okay? the cities of refuge. Okay? And there are rules related to this. And when we're dealing in this particular passage, we're dealing with people that have killed someone. Let's just use the general word. When you kill someone, right, you are going to be killed now if certain conditions are met. Now, the, the difference between what we see in Romans 13, when we are an organization under governments, we are not a nation, right, but we are an international organization living among nations, is that we recognize the God-ordained structure of human government, as Romans 13 says, and there are very, you know, express and and detailed ways, even in the Greco-Roman world, to get justice, avenge justice, or here's a word, execute justice when someone has wrongly and unjustly killed someone, okay, let's use the word murder, then there are ways that they are executed. In the tribal Mentality. I shouldn't say mentality. In the tribal economy of coming into Canaan, into the promised land, if, if someone killed your spouse unjustly with malice and a forethought, uh, as we'll see, 
then there is someone called the avenger of blood. That's how this text starts, verse 19. The avenger of blood. That's someone in the clan, in the family, who has a vested interest in the person that died, who's now going to come and kill you. And there are rules about when he can and cannot kill you. See, it's not some, you know, firing squad. It's not somebody flipping a switch in, in, you know, in, in San Quentin. It's the family. It's the people who have a vested interest in the lost life. Okay, now look at this text. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. Okay, the murderer. There's the word we see in Exodus 20:13. He has done something that fits that, that definition. And so when the avenger of blood, who's going to mete out justice in this case, meets the murderer, right, he shall put him to death. Okay, if he's pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Okay, murder, someone who did not deserve to die, who was hated, now he's innocent in a relativistic sense, he was murdered by someone, Right? Now he's going to have his life snuffed out by the avenger of blood. Okay? Let's just start there. I'll come back to that passage. But go on to verse 22 now. Verse 22. And let's introduce a new uh, Hebrew word here. But there's a distinction. Verse 20. If he pushed him suddenly without enmity, he hurled if, or he hurled anything at him without lying in wait, or, or used a stone that could cause death, and without seeing him, he dropped him on him. Oh, man, it's the kind of, ooh, I didn't mean to do that. And he dies, though he was not his enemy, and he didn't seek him harm, but he killed him. Then the congregation shall judge between the, now we got a new word here. This is nakah, up on the screen, nakah. That's the passage here that we're looking at, verses 23 to 27. That is someone who has killed someone without that malice in their heart, without lying in wait, without a forethought, I'm going to kill that guy. Right? He still killed him. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. Now, you kill my wife tonight, I'm going to be angry. And in the tribal life of Canaan, when you go to settle, I am now called the avenger of blood because I want to get back and settle the score. I want there to be justice, which God calls for. We're going to deal with this in a few weeks down the road when we deal with capital punishment. But there's something about having the blood that was spilt be atoned for. Now, I got to make a distinction. Did you mean to kill her? Right? Did you not mean to kill her? And even the judging. I now have to talk about negligence and a whole mess of other things that the law spells out. But the distinction we make is between murder and manslaughter. Those are the words we use in our jurisprudence. That's the way we talk about it. We, you know, somebody killed someone. They didn't intend to. They didn't hate them. They weren't mad at them. It could be negligence. It could be drunk driving. There could be levels of culpability and judgment. Or maybe you just dropped something out your window because you were going to throw it in the trash and hit somebody on the head and kill them. And you completely had no sense of that. And it was on your property. There's lots of, of issues that the Bible works through. And every penal code in the world tries to work through to distinguish the guilt of that person. Okay? But you need to know, nakah is a different word than ratzak. That, that word is that malice aforethought. That sitting there and waiting and wanting to hurt someone. Now, keep reading. Verse 25. The congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge, to which he had fled. 
because you can go now and touch the axe, if you will, or whatever, the safe spot. I go back to elementary school on the playground. There's a safe corner, right? You can't get me while I'm here. That's the city of refuge, and you have to live there. You have to live there, verse 25, until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. Just to go back to the weekend's message, right? That's a different kind of anointing. That's the special oil. That's a ceremony that makes you the high priest, if you were here on the weekend. But if the manslayer, right? Uh, at any time shall go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, then the avenger of blood who finds him outside the boundaries of the city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills him. Now, this is interesting, because guess what word that is? That's the word ratzak. I meant to point out another word that we see throughout this one. It says, put him to death. Every time you see put him to death, it's the Hebrew word moot, like in the first verse that we saw, verse 19. All right? The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to mute. Moot, moot, not mute, moot. And moot is the word to, to kill. Now, at the end of this, it says in verse 27, you shall kill him, kill the manslayer, and he shall not be guilty of blood. Now, note what's happening here. Ratzak is again found in the text, but we don't translate that word murder because though there is hatred in his heart, there's anger in his heart, right? There's an intent to kill in his heart. This we see in the text is a justified killing. Because he has delegated authority from the elders of the tribe, if you will. In this case, the law of Moses, granting it all the way through the leaders of the community. To where he says, if he goes outside of the city of refuge, which, which I started this discussion with in terms of the equivalent. It's the penitentiary. You go there now until the death of the high priest. And if you leave it, you can be killed by the avenger. The avenger of, of blood. All those words there. All I'm saying is I just bring up a passage that's full of words, four different words, three different words, for killing, because not all killing is created equal. And when we talk about murder, which we're going to use that word throughout tonight, we're talking about that decision to unjustly put to death the innocent, right? Didn't deserve it. There are times when the people do deserve it. Sometimes it is delegated authority in the tribal communities in the land of Canaan. Later, it's invested in the government, like in Romans 13, they don't bear the sword for nothing. But in this context, what I'm trying to say is murder is a very distinctive kind of killing. And it's the kind that is morally wrong. And even Ratzak is not wrong in every case, depending on the context, whether it is sanctioned or not. We'll deal with this more. That issue, if that tweaked you a little bit, we'll deal with it more in a future lecture, but I just want to deal with the destruction of innocent life. That's what we're talking about throughout the night. When there is not a just moral cause for the destroying of that human life. All right, let's deal with the first topic, which is number two on our outline, suicide. Which has hit the news here with, uh, you know, our, our famous comedian killing himself. A lot of talk, a lot of blogs, a lot of, I don't know. It's always relevant because there's always people killing over 30, I think the latest, uh, the latest poll is like 32,000 people a year. Think about that. In America alone are killing themselves. 12th leading cause of death in America, which is down the list pretty far, but still frequent. Let's define it though, okay? Let's start with the word that we always use, suicide. Uh, it's a Latin, it comes from a Latin word, Latin components. Sui, self, right? Cadere is the... Uh, Latin word for to kill, okay? And when you read the word and the components in Latin, self-killing, self-killing, oh, okay. 
you've got to stop right there. It's a lot like the word kill in English in the 16th, 17th century. It has a lot of different meanings. There's a lot of different applications of the word to kill. And so in this context, we've got to make some distinctions. So let's think through the definition with some distinctions. Picture, for instance, a man on the bridge... Uh, big tall bridge and he's despondent and he's you know end of his rope he's emotional and he jumps from the bridge after writing a note to his wife okay that's clearly you know okay yeah it's suicide same bridge month later drivers going down the, the, the bridge uh, some minivan is stalled kid runs out in front of the street he sees the kid the only way he cannot hit the kid is to turn his car into the rail which will likely take him over the side so he has died by his own steering of the wheel he has you know killed himself that's i mean the components of the word suicide and yet that's a very different context you get a JW, I just use that as an example, who doesn't believe in blood transfusions. He's really sick. Clearly, that's the problem. He has an ethical reason in his own mind, uh, you know, albeit a wrong one, but he decides, I can't get the blood transfusion on ethical grounds in his own thinking, so he doesn't get it and he dies. Well, he could have lived, but he, I mean, we could say you're responsible for your own death there. Is that suicide? We have to make distinctions. That's why I've tried to spend a little time dealing with the word murder. Suicide, morally, in the Bible, is self-murder. It's the killing of my own life. Let's give it some other words here. Intentional. And when I say intentional, it doesn't mean it can't, it doesn't have to be pass, it doesn't have to be active. It can be passive. I can passively kill myself by today deciding I'm never going to eat another meal. I'm just going to starve myself. And I could go on a hunger strike and I could die and it would be my own fault, but it would be a passive killing of my own life. That would be a suicide. It would be morally wrong. It would be the murder of my own life, right? Killing myself, right? Or I can do it actively. It's not coerced and it's not sacrificial. Just to use the example of a man driving off the bridge because if he doesn't, he's going to kill a kid. This is uh, the moral decision to take my life innocent life. I'm not convicted of a crime. I'm not the executioner in my own trial. I am either passively or actively murdering myself. Which, by the way, very important way for us to look at this as we hear about suicides and the way our whole society has shifted to a therapeutic understanding of everybody's decisions, being victimized, everybody's got a syndrome or a disorder. And if you use the word and the definition that I'm giving you tonight, self-murder, you've got a little different view of that. We'll deal more with that. But let me give you a couple of biblical examples of classic self-murder. Second Samuel 17.23, Ahithophel. Ahithophel and the coup d'etat that took place in David's kingdom, you might remember, it was a really rocky road. We kind of picture him as the boy kills Goliath and he kind of rises to the throne. What a twisted and, you know, winding road it was to be settled in the kingdom. Even if he gets to the throne, there's a coup d'etat by his own son, Absalom, you might remember. And Ahithophel was one of his trusted advisors and he, he chose wrongly in the split of the kingdom. And he went with Absalom. And and then he goes with Absalom, and he knows he's blown it with his old boss. And as he goes to consult with Absalom, he ends up being, you know, one-upped by other advisors, and he's not trusted. And that's the short, you know, cliff note version of it. But he ends up realizing, I've... I've cut ties with the, with the right team, the moral team. I'm now on the losing team, and I'm not even honored in the losing team, and they didn't take my counsel, which is how this, this is the impetus for his suicide. Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, 
by Absalom. So he saddled his donkey, he went home to his own city, he set his house in order, and he hanged himself. I'm on a losing team, I've made some stupid decisions, I backed the wrong horse, I don't like my position now, I'm not even honored in my job, I'm going to go home, I'm going to set everything in order, make sure my will's the way it needs to be, and I'm going to kill myself. And that's what Ahithophel did. That's a classic example of taking your own life, not under coercion, in this case actively by hanging yourself, not in some act of personal sacrifice for the life of someone else, Ahithophel. Another example would be the classic one that you probably thought of first. After throwing the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. He went and hanged himself. Who's the he in this passage? Right? He's despondent over what he's done. He knows he's done wrong. He's overwhelmed with guilt and despondency. And he gives back the blood money and he kills himself. 1 Kings 16, verse 18. Another example is Zimri. I mean, this is a really bad time in the history of of Israel and Zimri the last king sees that the city was taken he went to the citadel of the king's house he burned the king's house over him with the fire and he died starts a fire kills himself in the fire Zimri says what future is there for me the city's taken you know he's done kills himself murders himself takes his own life made in the image of God makes that decision now with that understanding of what suicide is, I mean, if I ask this, if I ask myself the question, well, is it okay for me to commit suicide? Well, you'd have to misunderstand a few things about you being a steward of life and not the owner of life. It's not yours to give. It's not yours to take. And murder, because everyone is made in the image of God, uh, you know, I might be able to, because of the, the allowance in scripture to kill an ox or a steer or a mule or a pig in the New Testament, at least, and, and eat them and cook them for, for dinner or have bacon in the morning, but I cannot kill a human being, an innocent human being, I can't take their life, and if it's my life, just because I'm so intimately acquainted with it and can direct it where I want it to go and think about what I want to think, I still have no right to murder you or myself. I can't murder you, I can't murder your wife, I can't murder myself, I can't murder my kids, it's prohibited, right? Exodus 20, murderers are culpable, they are responsible. They are responsible for their actions. And whenever I have to preach at a suicide funeral, it's one of the toughest things we do as pastors to get up in front of a grieving crowd where someone has killed themselves. I always have to make clear in those funerals as nicely as I can in soft tones and all the rest. But I want to say, hey, we've got to recognize the responsibility the person bears. The myth in our society is the ones that kill themselves are not responsible for killing themselves. And it's very important that we realize despondency, you can call it a syndrome, you can call it a disorder, you can put a lot of labels on people's activity, but they are responsible for their activity. You could say, well, isn't there an exception, Mike? You've been teaching lately on demon activity in the gospel of Luke, and it seems like these people, against their own will, are killing themselves. And if you remember in the sermon a couple weeks ago when we were dealing with uh, demonization, and that's an important word because I'm trying to express the fact that people now overtaken by spiritual entities in the book of Luke or any of the gospels, now are Demonizomai. They have that demon caused is menos, passivity, that passive ending. They have in their own lives actions that they do not initiate, saying things that they don't want to say, throwing themselves in the fire, cutting themselves with stones. 
And I made a statement real briefly, and it would have to go back to the angelology series that we dealt with to say none of that, when I made this statement real quickly, none of that is without personal culpability. If not at the moment, back earlier in the process. And we made that, we made that distinction. And I'd have to prove that to you biblically, but, um, and there may be exceptions to that. All I'm telling you is the general teaching of the scripture on this, that even when you reach that place, you can look back somewhere on the deviation to follow a path that you made decisions that took you to that end. Now, I can't argue that right now, but I can tell you murders are culpable. And I say that maybe, maybe you've had a suicide in your own family. They're culpable. Family members and friends are not culpable. It's another thing I always have to say at funerals for suicide, uh, self-murderers. I have to say, no one is responsible but the person who does it. You are not responsible. There's a lot of survivor guilt when it comes to, you know, people who commit suicide. And I can't be clear about this, that there is no responsibility born. There are, I like to put it this way. There are a lot of things that may explain someone's suicide. See, but there's nothing that excuses it. It is an action of personal responsibility. And therefore, you may say, well, I was a real jerk to the person. Then they went and killed themselves. Well, you may have been a jerk to the person, and it may have been part of the reason, but it certainly is not something that we create as an excuse. Everyone makes decisions. And if you look at people making decisions that are sinful, you can see as many people, or usually you know, thousands, exponentially more people that have the same uh, prompts in their lives that don't make the same decision. Right? And that's why the defense in court about someone's childhood or upbringing or their past or they were beaten as a child. And you say, well, how many people were that don't choose this result? That's a whole other series of lectures and perhaps we'll get to that if we have some extra time in this series. But the jurisprudence and the psychological definitions of people's responsibility is so skewed today. Everyone gets off from being responsible, which is really an assault on the dignity of mankind made in the image of God, responsible for our own decisions. Murders are culpable. If you grew up in a Catholic home, under Catholic teaching, I'm sorry for that, first of all, because there's so many things that will lead you astray in thinking through sin, just as a topic. We may have to touch on this again later in our series when we deal with sin more specifically. But when the Catholic Church takes sin and divides it into two categories, venial sin and mortal sin, and says the serious sins are felonious sins, right? They're felony sins, and then there's misdemeanor sins. And if you die with misdemeanor sins on your account, well, then that's okay. They can be dealt with in purgatory. But if you die with felony sins on your account and you haven't done anything to deal with those and rectify those, if there's not been penance appropriately done, or depending on the era, still in the catechism, you know, the confessions that's been done, the things done to make this right, the, the dispensing of grace through the sacraments, if that has not taken place after the felony crime, which in this case is what's called mortal sin, then there is no hope for you. You will not go to heaven, right? You will go to hell and you will never, there'll be no hope for you. So they take self-murder, and I guess if you're going to gradiate sins, I mean, I'm all with you. That's a felony sin. It's a big sin. But when you take mortal sin and define it and say that needs some kind of penance or there can be no rectifying of that sin, it makes a mockery of the cross and the finished work of Christ. If you are, in fact, a real genuine Christian, which may be called into account because, you know, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be a murderer, right? But perhaps there is a Christian who's genuinely converted who in a moment of despondency kills themselves. If you think like a Catholic, then there's no hope for you. And all I'm saying is what matters is the profession of faith, the trajectory of fruit, the evidence of that faith in life, 
not that last decision that the person made. Although, what I'm looking for, and I hope you are too, is a rich welcome into the kingdom, as Peter wrote, and that ain't going to get you one, right? If your last act on earth was one as serious as murder. All right, but murders are culpable. There's more we could say on that, and I've tried to speak on that at other times, but loved ones are not. It is a sin. People are responsible. It's not the unpardonable sin. Uh, It's a serious sin. Suffice it to say that much tonight. Let me say this. If you've thought about suicide, I understand that. Everyone, I suppose, at some point has thought about it, and some people have even dwelt on it. And a lot of that comes from despondency. We don't like the pain. And at some point we say, I want the pain to end, and I know one way it could end if I weren't here anymore. And all I want to say is, that's a very normal feeling. You're not alone. Everyone feels that at, at some point, to some degree. Godly people get despondent. They can be despondent. They can feel despondent and have periods of serious despondency. I talk about Ahithophel. I talk about Judas. Now, those are bad guys in the Bible. Here's some good guys. Moses. Moses is a guy who is hailed as the the greatest prophet. Whenever someone gets in Moses' face, God is quick to defend him. He says, listen, I speak to him like a friend speaks to a friend at the tent of meeting. Now, this is all an analogy, of course, but face to face. He's, he's my tight friend, God says. It's an amazing, I mean, that's Mike Fabar's paraphrase. That's an amazing thing. Here is a godly man. And yet in Numbers chapter 11, verse 15, in the midst of a really bad day, he says, if you treat me like this, God, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, God, if you want to grant me a request, if you want to answer one of my prayers, answer this one, that I may not see my wretchedness. What does that mean? Kill me. I want to be done with this. I don't want to have to go through this. I don't have to look in the mirror and think about all that's happened and the failures in this situation. Kill me. Moses felt that way. Elijah, 1 Kings 19.4. After this great victory over the prophets of Baal, he's running from Jezebel, you might remember. He went by himself about a day's journey into the wilderness. Now you think, well, that's not 10 minutes. That's not an hour. A day, you're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you drive you know, all day somewhere into the middle of nowhere. Even that says something about his mindset. He came and sat down under a broom tree, which we could preach on that even, that decision. He came and and he asked God this. He asked that he might die, saying, it is enough, quote, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. I'm done. I've had enough. Being chased down by the queen mother and and the king, I'm done with this. And there's Elijah coming off the great victory there with the prophets of Baal and all of that. I mean, godly guy. I know Jonah gets a lot of grief because, you know, he introduced, we were introduced to him in chapter 1 as a guy running from God's will. But, you know, you don't get to be a prophet of the Lord. I mean, just, you know, he's, you should give him the honor that he's due for all the mistakes that are pointed out about his life. I mean, he is a prophet of the Lord and one I think you're going to have to stand in line to talk to one day. In the fourth chapter, you might remember, and I quoted this on the weekend too, about that thing, that grew, the, the plant that grew up over his head. Well, when it died, he said, Oh, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, it's not about a sunburn on his forehead. This is about the fact that he's watching the, the, the capital of the Assyrian kingdom, and he's getting the drift that God is not going to punish them. And it's pretty clear. The bad guys are going to win in his mind, and there he is on the outskirts of town, He's, he's, he's hot, he's sunburned, he's tired, and he's just, I'm done. Take my life. Jonah, the prophet, the preacher, wants to die. Job chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 11. 
After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. You could read the intervening, you know, nine verses if you'd like. They're all very depressing. Then he says, why did I not die at birth and come out of the womb and expire? Job, by the way, this is chapter 3, two chapters earlier, was described as the godliest guy in the country. Think about that. Nobody else like him, God is boasting about the godliness of man, of this man. I mean, if you can get a, a lunch date with Moses, Elijah, Jonah, and Job, take it. Those are godly people. And then you can get around to, you know what, have you ever really felt bad in your life? And all four of them will say, yeah, there are days I wanted to just die. I pray that God would take my life. So despondency, you know, is something that can happen in godly people's lives. And all I'm telling you is it's not something where you sit there, as Satan would love to do, isolate you as a, as a person thinking that these are very unique thoughts. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you but that which is common to man. Right? We understand that everyone, at least every segment of every generation, deals with this kind of feeling. But, letter E, other solutions have to be employed. There has to be another solution than you becoming a murderer or any of your friends becoming a murderer or any of your relatives becoming a murderer. Well, I don't want to oversimplify this, but I am looking at the text of Scripture to see how God responded to these people that wanted to kill themselves. Let's start with Moses. The very next thing God says to Moses is this. Then the Lord says to Moses, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. We're going to call some folks in to help you. That may sound simplistic, but you know what people need? And I've had to counsel them. I've had to bury them. I've had to deal with them. I've been in the crisis mode with these people. I know what they need. And one of the things they need is people to help them. People coming alongside of them. Here is a guy that's overwhelmed, overworked. He's tired, exhausted, and he's lamenting his own life, praying for God to kill him. And God says, let's get 70 guys in here to surround you with and take a bit of this burden off of your shoulder. Very practical, God is. 1 Kings 19.6. Again, I don't want to make too, you know, I don't make light of people's despondency, but what is God's response to Elijah? And he looked, right? He leads him. I'm speaking here providentially about what God did, but Elijah looks and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and laid down again and went to sleep. You need cake is what you need (laughs) if you are depressed and despondent. Cake and water or cold frosty milk would be good too. And a long sleep and a long nap. And then you know what God does. You know the rest of the story, right? You think you're the only one. Everyone that I've ever known that is suicidal, they always think they're all alone, all isolated. And we even see God in that text saying, you think you're the only one. I got all these people that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone. There are people like you that are committed to the same things you are and grieve over the same things that you grieve over. And they hate the Jezebel is on the throne just like you do. You need, I mean, this is physical. We are a composite, right? I know we're software and hardware, but the intertwining of those two, when the hardware is overheating, it needs a good night's sleep and some good meals. Jonah chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Jonah wants to kill himself. God's response, he says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
right? Now, I know it's more than the plant, but that's the immediate impetus for his anger and his outburst. And Jonah's still pounding his fist. Yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said to him, you know, you pity that plant. You didn't do anything to make it grow. You didn't tend it. It just grew up. And you're lamenting the death of a plant. And then he says in verse 11, should I not pity Nineveh, this great city? And he goes on to talk about it in verse 10, I think. All of that perspective, right? Get, let's get this in perspective. Can you pull out from this pain that you're having that the immediate cause of you crying out for death is, a, is the death of a plant? Can we get a bigger picture here about bigger issues that are much bigger than your pain right now? Perspective, people, help, the cadre of men around Moses, the sleep, the food, the biological solutions that help to comfort Elijah, the perspective that gets Jonah off of this. And I suppose you'd have to read all of Job chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41 to get all of the solution, but when he starts to get the, the perspective that God gives him and looking at the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the, the oversight of all the things in the planet, Job's response is, behold, I'm, a, I'm of small account. I thought my injustice, my problem, I want a uh, hearing with God, I want to shake my fist at the tribunal of God. He says, I lay my hand over my mouth. I've spoken once, I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. I will stop with all that silliness. And the silliness really started in chapter 3, cursing the day of his death. That's where he took the turn and the downhill run. And God, in the end of the book, brings him back and says, get some perspective here. Let's get your pain and the injustice of your life in perspective. And he goes all the way to talk about creation and the moon and the sun and snow and wind and animals and the Leviathan. And he says, come on, look at this. Again, another statement of perspective. Now, there's a lot that can be said, but the answers are found in God who knows you best. You need help. You need to not suffer alone. The people that you know that are despondent, they need people. They need help. They need biblical guidance. They need people to give them some help. Even in Elijah's case in in 1 Kings 19, perhaps even there are issues of medical concern they need. I get that. Biological and spiritual. But other solutions have to be employed, not becoming a murderer. Let's talk about euthanasia on the back. All these fun topics, suicide, euthanasia. Some definitions real quick. This one, again, who can understand the English language? I don't know, but sometimes these words come from Greek. Sometimes they come from Latin. This one's from Greek. Ooh, if you've studied Greek, even basic Greek, you know that component, that element of a word. That's good, like a eulogy. Uh, Logi, you know that is a word. A eulogy at a funeral, as long as we're talking about death, is the good word that's spoken. Ooh means good. Good, right? Uh, Thanos, the Greek word, Greek root for death. Thanatos, uh, Thanos, death. Good death. Okay, now let's get, let's understand what we're talking about here. We're talking about the right to die. Why would I want to die? Because what I've got in life right now is bad. This would be better. It would be good to die in this situation. We also put this under the heading of mercy killings, right? Euthanasia, let's put it this way, is murder to avoid pain, suffering, disgrace. I have some bad thing right now and death would be better than life. And it's not the emotional part of this necessarily, though it's always 
intertwined. But this would be the better option. Ooh, Thanatos. Ooh, Thanos. It's, it would be better now to die. It would be merciful to die. Okay. Euthanasia can be intentional, or is intentional, always intentional. It can be passive or active. Just because it's passive doesn't mean it's not euthanasia. To choose to die, in this case, we're going to call it what it is, to murder innocent person, not some you know, jury has you know, said that this person needs to die. It's the intentional, passive or active. It can be assisted or unassisted. It may fall in connection and under the heading of suicide, a kind of suicide, that someone kills themselves with all this chronic pain and this terminal illness. Or it can be assisted, which we've had all the propositions and the debates and the Kevorkian back in the day and all the discussion about, you know, the ability, my right to die and go and have medical assisted suicide, it was called, you might remember. I don't hear a ton about that anymore. That death in this case would be better. So let us intentionally take the life, either actively or in some way passively, assisted or unassisted. Something you would do with an animal, right? Your, your dog breaks his leg and has some infection. Take him, we'll put him down, put him to sleep, right? Well, I, there's the principle in, at, at work. If the dog continues to live, the dog will only suffer. Well, if grandpa continues to live, grandpa will only suffer. Let's put grandpa down like we put the dog down, like we shoot the horse when it breaks its leg. I mean, that's the principle that's at work. That it would be better for that animal, that person in this case, to be dead. But it's murder because we're dealing with someone made in the image of God who has life that is given by God in his image. Let's give some examples of this in the Bible. First Samuel 31, 3 through 4, 3 and 4. This is Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. He's on Mount Gilboa there. The archers found him. That's one way to put it. He was badly wounded by the archers. So now he's suffering, he's dying. And Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through. Right? This is armor bearer assisted suicide. Right? I want you to kill me. Thrust me through. Right? Lest these uncircumcised come and, and thrust me through and mistreat me. I might be tortured. Right? But his armor bearer would not. For he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. I couldn't get the armor bearer assisted suicide, so he committed suicide in himself. I'm wounded, I'm hurting, I'm going to be captured, they'll torture me, I'm going to die. I'm going to choose to die. I'm going to ask for assisted death, but I can't get that, so I'm going to die myself. Judges chapter 9, another example, Abimelech. You might remember Abimelech, you ladies studying our Judges women's Bible study will get to this in Judges 9, another bright spot in the book of Judges. That's sarcasm. He came to the tower and he fought against it and drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire and a certain woman threw an upper millstone. Now, remember the millstone is like a big cement donut. They're big. On Abimelech's head and it crushed his skull, right? When you think of crushed, it wasn't flat as a pancake because he's still alive. But he knows he's dying and he's bleeding. And he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, another armor bearer assisted suicide. Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, in this case it's disgrace, a woman killed me. I don't want to be killed by a woman in a battle. And his young man thrust him through and died. He had a much more courageous armor bearer, or I might say maybe in a lower point in Israel's history where the sanctity of life was not as high on the totem pole 
and he is killed to save disgrace, to save suffering, to save pain. He doesn't want that. This would be undignified for me to die. Again, the definition may not be the same as it is in the book of Judges today, but certainly people are making that decision to take their life or have someone take their life because they don't want the disgrace, the indignity of whatever their disease or sickness is. All right. Say a couple things here, and we'll get into more pertinent matters perhaps in your life. I don't know. Murder is prohibited, Exodus 20. I gave left you no room because there's not a lot I can say about that. Murderers are culpable. Again, if I'm taking innocent life, I understand that I'm taking that innocent life that I don't have the right to take. God gave me that life. I'm not the owner of it. I'm the steward of it. I cannot take it. And I would be culpable as a murderer. I would be guilty and held responsible before God in his tribunal as a murderer if I take that life. Okay? Other solutions must be employed. Now, let me give you a couple. Now, again, we could spend all night on any one of these topics, and it could be much more thorough, but let me give you a few things from the Bible when people are facing death, and they turn to this. And I think I mentioned on Sunday, I'm reading a book right now on the martyrs of the Ottoman period, and there were a lot of them. I mean, you think beheadings are getting frequent on the news today. They were really frequent in modern-day Turkey uh, in, you know, the 15th, 14th. I mean, you go back, well, the whole Ottoman Empire, I guess the 13th to the 18th. Uh, All right, getting off. But my point is, I'm reading about people that need courage when they face death, okay? Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says this. He's in a Roman prison. He thinks that perhaps he may die. He's got optimistic thoughts that, hey, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. I'm not going to be tortured. I'm not going to be killed here. But that, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. If I live and get out, I'm going to honor Christ and I'll have the courage to to do this. Or if they kill me, I'm going to face this with courage. I'm not going to be like Saul asking for Timothy to run me through. There's courage that is needed. Other solutions have to be found. And in the Bible, we can look at several other passages, but I just gave you one for an example. Courage is always the thing that we need. We need great courage, which God is ready to grant. We also need God's grace, which we dealt with on Sunday. We were dealing with sickness. Let's ramp that forward to really severe terminal sickness now. We need the grace of God. That passage there when God said, no, I'm not going to take away your illness. I pleaded three times about this, that it should leave me. It didn't though. God said this, my grace. And what do we define that this weekend as? My provision. I will provide you in the illness. I won't cure you of it in this case. But if you're dying, I will give you sufficient courage and grace. My grace is sufficient for you because power, whatever this grace is, it will result in power. That's certainly akin to courage and it will be made perfect. It will be just what you need in the weakness, in this case, of a, what we would assume is a lifelong chronic physical illness that Paul had. We need God's grace and we certainly need courage. And then, man, we need dopamine and, you know, dilaudid and we need, uh, you know, we need morphine. We need medication. That's biblical, by the way. Proverbs 31, 6 and 7, which I should quote just before this. Is, he says, not, not for kings, O Lumiel. It's not for kings to drink wine. Remember that passage? Why? He says, because it's not for kings to drink wine. It's not for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Man, you want to stay away from the alcohol. That's 
the comment here in Proverbs 31, and then it flips it around and goes, oh, but there's a, there's a very important use for this. Give strong drink. You know what I'm talking about? The strongest alcohol of the 10th century B.C.? Well, we know when to use that. Give it to the one who's dying, right? To the one who's perishing. And wine to those who are in distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty, and let them remember their misery no more, Right? In terminal illnesses, in difficulties where you need courage and God's grace and God's provision and God's strength. You also, I hope, you know, have access to medication. And, and even if it's, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, you get what you can get to dull the pain. Uh, and that's good. And we live in a day where we got better things than giving you a bottle of whiskey when you're dying. Um, we give you Dilaudid or some other strong opiate to help you through it all right you doctors can fill me in with a longer list of words i said dopamine well you need that too but that's a natural element all right e let's make a distinction because this is i'm sure something on your mind here's one distinction i need to make very clear life support decisions we live in a very unique time where when we started in Genesis, we are said that we are to have dominion over the, the earth and we are to subdue it. We are to control it. We are to manipulate it so we can make iPhone 6s and we can, you know, make respirators and we can make, you know, uh, you know, paddles that will zap hearts back into beating. All of the things that we've made here, right, rightfully used, I trust, are all for good. It's all a part of God's plan. The thing is now we've, we've done really well with a lot of these things, not as well as sometimes we think, but... Sometimes we are in situations where we can, let's think of this scenario, artificially maintain a life. We can do some things to keep that life going. Those lungs wouldn't breathe on their own, but we can put, on a, put, you know, put dad on a respirator, you know, and, and we can keep those lungs pumping. We, we, you know, we can't, have the, he can't digest food or eat food, but we can put something in his arm here. We can put an IV in and we can give him nutrients. And so we can artificially feed and we can artificially keep the body moving. And when you think in those terms, I'm thinking also, I'm trying to set a scenario for you, a setting. I'm thinking of someone who's got an illness that is, not by your opinion, but by informed people, it is terminal. This is, this is, a, this is, we're past the, the, you know, the cancer treatments now. We're, we're past any kind of, of you know, operation. We have an illness and it's, it's, it's moving to death. It's terminal. This is going to end in death. And I say that in terms of an, an informed opinion of someone who I hope has been to medical school and actually did well on his or her tests. And they would say an informed opinion would be death is imminent. Which, again, I don't want to always defer everything to, quote-unquote, professionals because people were making death decisions without all the contraptions with, you know, just by understanding enough about life and experience to say this is terminal and death is imminent. Either way, there's the setting I'm talking about. And you can say, well, he's saying all these things about euthanasia, better to die. What about in those situations? Life is artificially maintained. Illness is terminal. Death is imminent. Then we get into the category of what is often called extraordinary measures, okay? There's where the choices come in. Extraordinary measures. This is like, you know, the, the DNS orders, the do not uh, resuscitate. Uh, the, the living will. You probably have a power of attorney living will. You know, some Christian groups now like to call them the, the, the will to live legal documents, 
whatever it is, this is where we have to make decisions. And many of us, you know, try to make these ahead of time in our trusts or our wills or power of attorneys that we put together or, you know, file things with our, our physicians. But the point is, are, are, we, are we involving ourselves in euthanasia when I envision an illness that is terminal and death that is imminent and I've made a decision to not resuscitate myself or my spouse or my parents or my grandparents, you know, is that, is that euthanasia? A couple things. We need, to, we need to weigh these things. Biblical revelation, first of all. And we've made very clear from the very beginning, life is a trust, life is a, is a uh, stewardship, life is a gift, life is sacred, life is given uh, by a unique, special endowment of God. It is not a, an animal, it is not a, you know, it is not a thing, it's not a plant, it's not a tree, it's not a rock. This is human life and it's unique. So I'm always in favor of life. I always, when the preponderance is, you know, 51, 40, I'm always in favor of life. I want to do what I can for recovery and restoration and wholeness. Okay? But when informed opinions, real legitimate informed opinions say, this is terminal and death is imminent. And you can even in your wills and, and trust decide what kind of time frames those are. Eminent in what? By professional opinion. Two weeks, one week. What, what does that mean? Then when do I pull the respirator? And, and when do I make a decision about you know, feeding tubes and all the rest? Okay? I think you have to. As unpleasant as it sounds to some theologians. You have to weigh natural revelation in all this. Natural revelation should give us some sense of what death is, how death works, how the terminal part of death, you know, comes to bear on every life. Now, here's the thing, you know, not all of us are around death, you know, like we would have been a hundred years ago in the animal world or in our families, right? It's a much more clinical and swept under the carpet into the corners of the world, but the idea is you should have people with some awareness of that, whether it's hospice or your pastors or your doctors, doctors who I hope are in favor of life. And, and like I said, at least guided by biblical principles of the importance and sanctity of life. That's where we want to make informed decisions about what am I doing here in fighting natural revelation about terminal sickness and artificiality of bringing life beyond what makes any sense in terms of what life would normally do. If I don't resuscitate, right, and, and this person dies, would I be, if I did resuscitate, resuscitating over and over? These are decisions, and I don't want to, and I could, but I don't want to give you some criteria or tell you what my documents say. Or I, I think you need to make those decisions with pastors and, and doctors and hospice nurses or whatever it might be to say, okay, I'm not violating any biblical principles here. I recognize something about natural revelation and death's imminence, and death's insistence, and death's force. And I've weighed that in the situations that I envision ahead of time, or when you're in the middle of it. And I know us pastors have to be there many times in those situations when you're quote-unquote having to pull a plug or take someone off of life support. But I think those are things at least I want to throw out and address to that extent and not further, because I can't point to chapter and verse on specifics. Because you could, I suppose, be into cryogenics or whatever and freeze people. And you could have a, a, an unnatural focus on maintaining artificially life, whether it's through respirators or 
you know, freezing people in tubes of dry ice or something. I don't know how they do that. I haven't studied that. All right. Enough said on that. We can deal with the rest of that in counseling, I suppose. Talk about abortion. Another fun topic. Sarcasm. Preborn or human from conception. That's not dogma from a religious person who's a pastor by profession. That is just, there's nobody that disagrees with that anymore unless you're just stupid. I mean, and I mean that. I mean, secularists have given up this fight because there's nothing, nothing that would not define what's going on inside of a woman's body in terms of humanity, unique humanity, from conception, right? This is, not, this is no longer the battle. This is not a blob of tissue, right? We understand this. This is a human, by every scientific definition, biologically human, right? Ontologically human. So the argument is no longer is what's going on when the chromosomes zip together. Is this human, right? Everyone would agree now. And I mean it. Liberal theologians, ethicists, doctors, this is human. See? So the artificial distinction, and now I'm in the realm of debating people, the artificial distinction is, well, it may be human, but it's not a person. Okay? So here's my contention. Preborn are human. I don't have to argue that because there's nothing you could not prove in any format that this is not human life. It's human life. It's even independent human life. Right? There's no doubt about it. The question is, are we dealing with a human person? Okay? My assertion, again, I'm teaching biblical anthropology, is that preborn babies, right, fetuses, if you want to call them that, are persons from conception. Okay. To rely on special revelation at this point, biblical revelation, we can say they are legally independent persons. Legally independent persons. Okay. And the classic text on this, which I know some people try to debate and, you know, some have made their case against this text. But let's just start here. It's one part of a composite. Exodus 21, 22 through 23. When men strive together, they're fighting. There's a woman that tries to break it up. We can assume. We can picture that. Hits the pregnant woman so that her child, right, her children come out. But there is no harm, right? There's no further harm. You know, this is premature birth. This is how most would read this. The one who hit her shall surely be fined. I mean, you've caused the problem here. And the woman's husband shall impose on him, right, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine, right? But if there is harm, right, then you shall pay life for life, limb for limb, right, tooth for tooth, eye for eye. There's the lex talionis, as they call it in Latin, the, you know, the, the just response. If you've killed the child then you must be killed, which is consistent with everything in the Old Testament um, and even in the New Testament when it comes to the sanctity of life. Okay, we could go further on that, but I'm rushed for time, so let's keep going. When you look at what the Scripture says regarding people, persons then, I believe, are persons from conception, not only because they are treated in the law code as independent legal entities, but because we see God directly creating them, speaking of them as direct personal creations. Note the pronouns. As the psalmist says, again, we'd have to go back to bibliology if you are a skeptic on these topics and know that we're dealing with God's revelation to man with his imprimatur on it, proven to be the word of God 
Here's what the Word of God says. When it comes to the person, right, reflecting here under the inspiration of the Spirit on his making, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I, I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. You made me before I was born. Here were my you know, parts coming together, intricately woven together. You saw my unformed substance. In other words, I have an unformed substance. It, these are pronouns of personal personhood. Right? Personal pronouns because they're persons. And they are un, as yet unformed. They're here described as substance, but they're also couched in this phrase as directly created by God. The person. We're interacting with persons. And in every other level, God relates to preborns as persons. Examples. Isaiah 51.5. Notice the logic of these two verses together. I was brought forth in iniquity, David says, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So from the beginning, from conception, from the beginning I was, conform- I was, I was uh, conceived in sin. Okay? That doesn't mean his mother was you know, uh, cheating on her dad. That's not the point. That, that's not what happened. We're talking about the problem because he's talking about how he has committed sin and because of his sin with Bathsheba, reflecting on his own sinfulness, saying, man, I was, I was a sinner from birth. Well, look now at this text in Romans 5. Juxtapose these two verses. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Now think this through. Sin came into the world by one person, Adam, and death right? Through sin, so that death spread to all men. The whole point of the fifth chapter of Romans there, at least the first half, is the, is the sin and the penalty spreading to all people. David takes that back to being pre-born. I was that sinner, right? Born in sin, fallen as a child of Adam, having that legal status before God as a sinful person before my exit, in, you know, from my mother into the world. That's relating his legal, spiritual status as a sinful being. We even have a characterized aspect of his life prior to birth. Luke 1, 13 through 15, which I preached on, well, it's been a long time now, I guess, over a year ago. The angel says to Zechariah, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been answered. This is the father of John the Baptist. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. But he must not drink wine or strong drink. That was the Nazarite idea. He'll be filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. And it goes on to describe the activity of the Spirit within John. Uh, I mean, when Mary gets with Elizabeth and leaps in her womb. I mean, here is this dignified, right, think about this, connection of the Third person of the Godhead saying to indwell a child, in this case, and I know it's a special case, there's no rules for this in the normal, you know, Christian, don't, don't think your preborn child is filled with the Spirit. But in this case, John's filled with the Spirit, has effects of that prior to birth, and all of that here as God describes someone who's not even born yet, not even seen the light of day, not even fully formed in his mother, describing him as a person. Judges 13 3 through 5. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. This is Samson's birth. You might remember. You'll get to this, gals, in the judge's study. I should have more Joshua passages for the guys. 
but that's not how it worked out today. And he said, Behold, you are barren, you have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful that you drink no wine or strong drink, right? And eat nothing unclean. Nothing, this isn't because of fetal alcohol syndrome, right? It's a very low alcohol content, by the way, in the Old Testament. What's the point? He's going to be a Nazarite, much like John the Baptist, right? Very special, set apart, devoted to God. One of the signs of that was you didn't drink any alcohol. And in this case, clearly, you shouldn't eat anything unclean, ceremonially unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the son shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, you've got a child who's in the womb. And God is saying he's a Nazarite from the womb, from that period of his life. Therefore, mom, you can't do things that the Nazarites are not allowed to do. Right? It's granting in the discussion the dignity of the child as already a Nazarite. Therefore, mom, because you're housing this child... You got to keep the Nazarite rules while you're pregnant. Just another amazing connection of God treating preborn people as individuals, even holding them to the rules of the Nazarite vow via the mother by proxy. Jeremiah 1.5, of course, these are classic texts you would expect. Therefore, I formed you in the womb. God says to Jeremiah, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I set you apart. I knew you, I consecrated you before you were born. Galatians 1.15, Paul speaking of God in his own life, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, dot, 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 that's just an interesting phrase, had set me apart before I was born. A lot like Psalm 139, before any days were ever out there, he had designed them all, but now describing this person as though he's a I'm describing this fetus, if you will, as though he's a person. God relates to the preborn as persons. One more. Natural revelation has made this clear. And again, I don't want to make too much of natural revelation, although whenever we see natural revelation come to bear on these topics, it is interesting to see that we are the weirdos at the end of the 21st century. I'm sorry, in the beginning of the 21st century. Um, we're the weirdos because this has been clear and made clear in, I mean, you name it. I go back to Hammurabi's Babylonian code. I mean, this is 1,750 years before Christ, right? In the Mesopotamian, between the Tigris and Euphrates, here's the empire Babylon, the code of, of Hammurabi, right? Detailed punishments, much like Exodus did, for causing a, a child to miscarry in someone. You have some altercation with a mom who's pregnant. If that child is born uh, dead, miscarries, you are held morally culpable before the law. The Persians also come along later under the, the reign of Tiglath-Pileser, and he prescribed penalties uh, for women who chose to abort their babies. If they did whatever it was intentionally to abort their children, they would be culpable and guilty before the law. Babylonians and the Persians were certainly not looking to the Jews to figure out their morality. Natural law had made this clear. Babylon, Persia, how about the Greeks? The Hippocratic Oath stated that there would be no abortive remedy given to a woman. That was immoral in the code. And it's just, we could go all around the world and see this. And these are the civilizations, right? Babylon, Persia, Greece, 
And then there comes California. Look up in the California Penal Code, section 187, and you can go to several, but it's just the first one. I think it's the first one in the code. California Penal Code 187A. California law defines murder as the unlawful killing of a human being or a fetus with malice aforethought. That's the definition of the California Penal Code. Now, again, because since the 70s in Roe v. Wade, we can now say if you want to kill your baby, it's now lawful, then that's how people get out of that, saying it's illegal. But if you want your baby, then California law defines murder as the unlawful killing of a human being or a fetus with malice aforethought. You can be charged with murder for killing a fetus, of course. You hear it in the news all the time, don't you? I mean, this, this doesn't make the headlines in the New York Times, I understand. But certainly when people kill a mom who's pregnant or almost kill a mom and the, and the, the fetus is killed, well, they're, they're charged with murder. So I'm gonna, I, don't, I don't know if California fits in with the Persian law, you know, the Babylonian law and the Grecian law, but you know, California's not known for being overly biblical and we're still seeing clearly, intuitively, that an unborn child is a person. What about choice, man? That's what the 73 Supreme Court decision was all about. Okay. With a million abortions a year, I get that. A million and a half. Which, by the way, is getting really bad. I I often quote the uh, stat that came out last year that in Manhattan, 41% of all conceptions end in abortion. In an abortion. I mean, think of that. The rate of abortion. Almost half of the children die. 20% 20% in America across the board. Well, let's just think real quickly about the reasons for abortion today, because you always talk about, you know, you always hear, you know, our legislators talking about, you know, mom's health, this is all about women's health. Well, here are the choices given in a survey. You can look this up on the internet, and I mean, these are legitimate studies and surveys. Um, reasons stated, I want to just postpone childbearing. I don't want to have a baby right now. I have a baby in two years. 26% of the people surveyed, why did you get an abortion? Say, I just don't want to have a baby now. Now's not a convenient time. Now's not a good time. How about this? Can't afford it. Be an economic drain on my life. 21% say, hey, that's, that's one of the reasons I, I got an abortion. It's, it's, I can't afford it. My partner doesn't want the baby. My husband or my boyfriend doesn't want that. 14% abort their children for that reason. Hey, I think I'm too young, right? Teenager gets pregnant, too young, don't want to have this baby. 12%. Baby would interfere with my job or the baby would interfere with my education? Well, we wouldn't want that. 11% abort their baby for that reason. Oh, I've had enough kids already. I don't want any more children. 8% get abortions because they've had enough. Their quiver is full, so I'll get rid of this one. Problems with fetal health, okay? Which sometimes that's what they say. Well, that's why we need abortion to be legal because if there's a problem with the baby... We, you know, we need, we need to allow parents to abort the child. Which, by the way, oh, that's 3%. It's not very high. But 3% of the people said, I aborted my child because, like my child, who was diagnosed with spina bifida, which used to be, still is at least contracted, the number one birth defect, neural tube defect, because, you know, there's only a couple of spina bifida kids running around our church uh, and in our society and at our school, I think my daughter's the only spina bifida kid at her school, right, who's paralyzed in her feet. It's not because they're not being conceived. It is the number one birth defect, number one neural tube defect 
and yet, why don't we have all the spina, why don't we have 10 spina bifida kids at my kids' elementary school? Because they're all aborted, right? But even that, it's only 3% of the reasons for doing it. That's why all my doctors told me to abort my, my daughter. Which, aren't you glad I didn't do that if you know my daughter? That's a good thing. Well, you hear this one all the time by the legislators. Well, the mother's health. Only 3% would state that there's any reason that any come, comes in contact with mom's health. So when I look at choice, which I sometimes say, well, here's the deal. My kid's going to be sick or ill or deformed or, you know, there, there's some retardation or Down syndrome or whatever. Listen, that's very rare. It's usually because I don't want a baby right now. Eh, it's going to cost too much. Oh, my boyfriend doesn't want it. My husband doesn't want it. Too young. Interfere with my job. Don't want any more kids. By the way, are you hearing what's going on uh, in San Francisco? The, the rate, and I looked this up today, there are 160 million abortions of females in Asia, uh, mostly in China. People are aborting based on gender. This is where you get the word eugenics, at least part of it. At least. You know, here's the most fundamental eugenics decision. And that is, I want eugenics, there's the word you again, good, genics, genetics. I want, I want some, something about my child that I want to choose. And I don't want a girl, I want a boy. So if I'm, if I'm diagnosed with a girl, then I'll abort the girl and I'll have the boy. Well, with so many of the Asians in San Francisco, right? You, well, let me step back. There are states, I think like Colorado, was it Colorado? I just read today. There are some states and some jurisdictions that are now saying we are not allowing abortions if the only reason you're getting an abortion is because you want a boy or a girl. You can't do it based on gender. Which, by the way, gets the liberals really twisted up on their thoughts. I looked up this gal, Deborah Saunders. She's a writer for a newspaper. She says, well, you can support the right to abortion, and yet you can still cringe at the same time at the thought of some women choosing to abort a girl because they want a boy. Did you follow that? You can support abortion and the right to have an abortion, but yet still, I mean, in other words, I'm okay living with this paradox, cringe at the thought of some women uh, choosing to abort a girl just because they want a boy. Well, look at my list, right? So all of these reasons are okay. The number one is, it ain't a convenient time for me. But see, they, they struggle with this. Anyway, the reason San Francisco was in the, in the news lately, and I should quote his name since he's so proud of this decision. David Chu was the supervisor, one of the supervisors who spearheaded the ban on the bans of not aborting a child based on gender. See, this is so distasteful for some, even liberals. They're saying, I don't want any abortions in my city or my town if the only reason you're getting an abortion is because of gender. Well, San Francisco now is in the process of saying, we're banning that ban, right? They're banning the ban. So if you want to abort your kid because of gender, you're clear to do that. We will not allow a ban, right, on choosing for whatever reason you want, including gender, which even has some liberals all bothered. Anyway, I guess some preferences are okay and others aren't. Some reasons are okay. Choice, it's funny how that works. With technology, we can only hope that people will recognize, um, increasingly so, that not only are we dealing with human preborn people, or not only human preborn life, but personal, persons, personhood. We've got people that are persons, life that is a person. All right, what about choice? Well, I get back to these two quick statements. Murder is prohibited and murders are culpable. 
Murder is prohibited. I cannot take an innocent life. Right? And murderers are culpable. They're guilty. They are held responsible for that. Now, when I've said that twice, I'm assuming, you know, you are not working for Kevorkian killing people that are terminally ill, although it's possible. And I'm assuming you're not a murderer uh, having killed somebody at your workplace or gunned somebody down, you know, in some, in Downey or something. So I'm, but when I say that about abortion, I can only think in a, in a crowd this size, there are people here who have had abortions. Uh, so all I can tell you is that the culpability of that, just like any sin, I suppose, is all about the reason Christ came to die on a cross, right? Not to give you license to do things like commit murder, but if you have committed murder, like the Apostle Paul had, to be able to say, Christ's grace is bigger than my sin. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank God who has given me strength, judged me faithful in appointing me to his servant, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent. I was shown mercy... Right? Even though I acted in unbelief, he said, the grace of our Lord has overflowed to me. It's a trustworthy statement. It is deserving full acceptance. Christ came to the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost, but I've received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe on him for eternal life. So he picked people like Paul who were out there having people kill, writing decrees and heading to Damascus to kill more people so that murderers could recognize that if you have murdered your child, that there is grace and forgiveness that's bigger than all your sin. And I don't have time to, to, to massage that into your mind, but I trust you know and you've heard me preach enough on the grace of Christ. There's got to be other solutions. They have to be employed. Uh, Matthew and John, come help me out here for a second if you would. Uh, thankfully, at our church, we have um, tried to employ some solutions, and one of them is Compass Hope. And I want to just have every table get one of these if I can, and I'd throw them to you if this were a youth event, but <laughs> since your, your dexterity may not be what it ought to be, I will just have my sons pass these out. Although, you guys can have one here. There you go. Compass, Compass Hope. Just quickly, just throw, don't throw them, but to- toss them gently on the tables. Yeah. Um, Take a few of these, if you would. Compass Hope is our new ministry to try and do something to help people through their situation, to allow people to be talked out of abortion, to have them understand what's going on. I say that. I probably shouldn't have said it that way. But we want to save lives. And so we've got Compass Hope. It's a website. If you haven't been to it, you should go to it and check it out. It's very simple. But the great feature of Compass Hope is if it's two in the morning and you log on to, you don't have to log on, you just browse to compasshope.org and you're pregnant and you're a teenager or a high school student or whatever, and you want to talk to somebody, you will immediately at that website, you'll be able to chat with someone at two o'clock in the morning or be able to have that become a voice call and discuss your quote unquote unplanned pregnancy with someone from our church. And it's women who man this, so you're not going to get, you know, Pastor Elliot or Pastor Mark <laughs> talking to some 16-year-old about a pregnancy. But it's all the gals in our women's ministry uh, who are, are part of this, and we're trying to do what we can, at least here in South County. So take the card. If ever you're in a situation where you can use this card and just hand it to someone who's in a situation. Now, I know that's such a 
you know, an unlikely event for most of us. We don't run into people every week who have unplanned pregnancies and don't know what to do. But I pass out thousands of cards here tonight just in hopes that maybe, you know, we can save a, a child or two. Because there's this huge word that is so important. If you can't handle the baby or it's the wrong time or you're too young, it's called adoption. See? And, and that's, that's what we would love to see happen is babies born and adopted into solid homes with moms and dads. So there's got to be other solutions, and of course there are. And I wish any one of these topics could have been a whole session, but we have so much to cover this year that abortion, euthanasia, and suicide had to go together. Now that may sound like you don't tell your coworker, well, what would you do? I went to church last night. Would you study abortion, euthanasia, and suicide? <laughs> it's going to sound bad, but I hope you're going away equipped and maybe even in some strange way encouraged about the sanctity of life. Let's pray together real quick. And then Hunter's got a quick announcement, I think. Let's pray. God, thanks for this group. Do pray for this ministry that we have, just thinking about abortion. I know there are so many abortions in our culture and even here in Orange County. It's happening all the time. I pray somehow you might providentially direct some of us to cross the path of someone who's in that situation, thinking about planning on an abortion, be able to intervene, stand in the gap, redirect, save life. That would be good. And God, all of us are going to think about our own demise. And for many of us living in this culture, it may be that we end up on a gurney on life support. Help us think carefully through those decisions about do not resuscitate and all those extraordinary measures and put that to rest in our own minds before we face it or have to face it uh, or my loved ones have to face it. And God, suicide, we all struggle with difficulty and depression, some greater than others. They reach places of despondency. I just pray for them to have hope. Uh, I know it's very practical, the things we looked at, but you're very uh, good at responding to your servants who feel that way and bringing what they need to bear in their lives to pull them out of that. So God, I pray that no one would feel alone in the midst of their emotional pain. You let them know that there's no temptation that's unique to them. They're all common to people. And so let us realize we're not alone and help us, God, to make it through life. I know every day is not going to be happy. And for many people, most days are, are, are sad or difficult. But allow us to recognize, as we've seen even with physical problems, that we need to face the, the world with courage. We pray that we'll have sufficient courage, whether in life and death, whether in good times or bad. Christ can be glorified in our bodies, whether by life or death. So God, help us, I pray to trust in you and receive that grace into our lives every day, the provision and favor that you can give us to, to be able to manage anything, whether whatever comes our way. Even as the martyrs of old have faced their own most difficult demise with great courage and strength and resolve and even tranquility in their spirit, give us that resolve that we can be, as Proverbs says, like the, the righteous, they're as bold as a lion, not afraid, not timid, not scared, recognizing what a great thing it is to be made in your image and to have that deposit, the grace of life given to us. Let us treat it well as good stewards, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.